forever. Dog. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Um, first of all, thanks. I am knocked out and flattered and grateful for the incredible response I've gotten to my new newsletter, Rewriting, uh, which is over at benblacker.substack.com. Um, so many of you on listening to pre- these past month's Writers Panel episodes went and subscribed. Um, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, a bunch of you subscribed for free. That is awesome. A bunch of you subscribed um, as paid subscribers, which is really cool. I cannot thank you enough. Um, and, and I'm glad I got to meet a bunch of you at the um, exclusive Q&A with Robert Cargill uh, that we had for paid subscribers. Uh, That was really a good time. We spent some time with Cargill. He talked about Doctor Strange and Sinister and the Black Phone and working as a writer in this business and just a lot of terrific advice. Um, And I will say, again, the only way to be part of those conversations is to become a paid subscriber at benblacker.substack.com. The November guest is going to knock you off your feet. That's a phrase, right? Um, anyway, thank you so much for that. Thanks for like giving me your time and attention. That's really unbelievably flattering. Uh, I'm mean, I've been enjoying doing the newsletter. Um, it's really been fun and sort of helpful to me to get ideas about the business and craft of writing uh, into order. That's kind of that's what writing is, right? Putting ideas into order. That's what it's been for me in the newsletter. Um, I'm really glad, you know, some of the most popular entries that I've had so far have been one about the current state of the industry, which is really messy. And so I tried to just order my own ideas about that and get some other people's ideas about that. Um, And then a real crafty one about writing spec scripts um, that people really responded to, which I appreciate. And then this new one uh, that we put out on Mickey Fisher's newsletter. Mickey and I did a a newsletter swap where we both wrote about networking from different perspectives and, you know, being at different levels and selling different kinds of material. Um, You should, if you don't already subscribe to Mickey's letter, uh, it's called um, The Extant... Storytech R&D report. The best way to find it is just to go follow Mickey on Twitter and uh, and fo- and subscribe from there. Um, but yeah, I did a, a article for him about networking that um, put, I hope, into perspective a lot of the advice that you're given about networking. It sure did for me. Anyway, I've been really loving writing these things. I, I it's hard for me to even keep it to one a week, which is what I'm trying to do so I don't inundate you. Um, But um, I appreciate you taking the time to read them, to subscribe, and and especially if you've become a paid subscriber. um, That is really cool. And honestly, it's really helpful to me because I feel like my time has value. And you recognizing that um, means a lot. Um, And I promise you, 
I'm doing that to an end. Um, I, 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 there's a project that I want to do that I need to raise money for myself. Um, and so doing this and doing the paid subscriber um, model is is going towards that. If you have been listening to the writer's panel for any amount of time at all, if you like what we do here, um, if you enjoy the conversations, if you fight, find them engaging or insightful, please become a paid subscriber. You get stuff for it. So, you know, it's better than crowdfunding in a lot of ways. Anyway, uh, I appreciate you reading no matter what, as I always appreciate you listening to this podcast. Some great episodes coming up this month. Uh, I really enjoyed having these conversations. Um, I'm finding more and more that just kind of talking with other writers is helpful both to my process and to my understanding of the current state of the business. Uh, And those are the kinds of conversations you're going to be hearing in the coming weeks. Um, I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. As ever, uh, follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. Let me know what you're watching, what you are um, enjoying, and who you want to hear on the podcast, and we'll see what we can do to get them. And if you can, please go and subscribe to benblacker.substack.com. There's a free level where you get free stuff every week, and there's a paid level where you get um, exclusive content, which includes the Q&As with pro writers. Uh, Next one coming up in a few weeks. Thanks so much. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Here's the first half of today's episode, and it's good. Our old friend John Ross Bowie is back. John has a new book coming out called No Job for a Man, a memoir. John, hi. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. Now, you've been on the show before. I mean, people know you as an actor, obviously. You've been on the show as a writer in the past, and I think like... This is this is worth talking about. You know, you've you've I I wouldn't say like writing has not been your full time career <laughs> as mm. you are an actor, but you've done quite a bit of it. You've written some books. You've written plays. Um, have you always been a writer? Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that was for a while. That was the the big goal. Um, in in college, I fancied myself. Uh, I always. I think one vision was I was going to go into academia and then be the guy who who publishes fiction occasionally, mm-hmm. and um, or I was going to really flip the script and teach high school and be the guy who publishes fiction <laughs> yep. occasionally, of which there are very few because high school <laughs> teaching is exhausting and um, you take those summers and you don't feel like writing. Um, yeah. Uh, but you get soup. You get scuba certified, is what you do if you can afford it. But, um, but yeah. So, but uh, but I have always written, and one of the things that clicked with me is one of the very first acting classes I ever took. Actually, right as I was sort of wading into it, I had a teacher just explain that well, acting is just a different form of storytelling, and I was like, oh, oh, yeah, of course it is. All right, okay, so I can kind of transfer these credits to a certain extent. Um, and uh, and I think about that a lot. 
because they do go back and forth, you know, a really good writer will almost include some acting in the way they describe somebody's gestures or somebody's Mm. appearance or what have you. There will almost be a sense of that eye for detail will will serve someone as an actor and as a writer. That's interesting. I, I This actually came up, I've, I've been teaching some classes and I was talking to the uh, folks taking it about like, there comes a point, you know, you've done a couple of drafts in your script and there comes a point when you have to start acting, when you have to embody these characters and feel what they're feeling. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just the kind of acting that is happy face, sad face. It's the kind of acting where you become the character. Um, yeah. And I think we ha- that's what we try to put on the page, right? Um, so the kind of writing that you've done, you know, that we know, um, you know, you've written some pilots, you've written, you wrote this great Heather's book, which I think we've talked about in the past. Um, this memoir has to be a somewhat different animal for you. It is, yeah. It's, um, I mean, there's a certain amount of memoir in the book I wrote about the movie Heather's, but this is a a, a deeper dive, and it's it started as just sort of a fluffy, fun actor anecdote memoir, and those are those are fine. But my agent was pushing me further and kept pointing out how large my father loomed in these stories. Hmm. And uh, my dad was a, a complicated guy, and you know the book is not um, the book is not mommy dearest or anything. It's not you know a, a slam piece on him or anything, but it examines <clears throat> the sort of weird generational gap we had and our um, and how much we had in common and how much that made us bump heads. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very raw form of writing, um, and. Again, I found myself having to kind of remember how my dad, my dad's been gone for 15, 16 years now, but remembering like his weird little gestures and his idiosyncrasies and trying to put an, hmm, how to put this, trying to put an impression of him on the page. Mm -hmm. You want him to come to life for the reader as much as he is for you. Yeah. But like really like thinking when when you're writing about a real person, you know, you almost think like, okay, how would... You know how would um, um, how would Bill Hader handle doing my dad? Like, what would he latch <laughs> on to? What would be the that's mannerisms he would latch yeah. on to? Um, that specificity, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, and I I really found myself thinking in that in that manner. Um, yeah, well, the, the, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just, I was going to say it's just it's it's interesting. I've because of some other work I've done over the past year, I've talked to a great deal of actors and a lot of uh, those, Ben, you produced a a podcast I I hosted about character actors. And I was struck by how many of them have their, have a foot in other mediums. Mm -hmm. And we had a ton of painters on the show, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And they all said the same thing. It was all about detail and nuance and shading you know, and what it, what does shading mean when you're doing cross hatching on a canvas? What does shading mean when you're acting something? What does shading mean when you're committing someone's life to paper? Um, so you know, not to get too woo uh, woo Southern California about the whole thing, but it really is all connected. It's all just different forms of storytelling. But there, that's something. There's something really interesting in that, and I think like in addition to a lot of 
actors who are painters that we talked to. There were a lot of actors who are musicians mm-hmm. um, and a lot who are writers. And I wonder if there's something about, you know, these things are connected, right? They they start from the same place, but is there a kind of a kind of shading, a kind of like hyper specificity that you can get to from these other forms that you can't get to from acting because of either the nature of like the TV or movie business, the kind of acting that that these actors tend to do, or is it that like our bodies are too imperfect <laughs> to get to that kind of specificity. They're too clunky as machines. That's interesting. There's two questions in there, I feel like, and I'm, I'm going to address the first one. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the shading and nuance you can bring to something, given the modern, um, the modern media economy and how things are working, you want to try to write your father as a character on a streaming show, not on a network <laughs> half hour. Yes. Um, no disrespect to network half hours. They've been very good to me. But um, you, you want to write your father as pre-1980 Al Pacino, not post-1985 Al Pacino. That's great. Yeah, I think that's a really, you know, where it's a very internal and it's all in the eyes and mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. less about she's got a great big ass and... <laughs> Um, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've seen heat like eight times. So you're, you're all set. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's, that's really funny. Yeah. I think there, there is something to, to the, the patience and, and, um, deliberation that goes into certain more nuanced performances on, hmm venues that aren't advertiser dependent. <laughs> mm-hmm. I tried to write um I tried to write my dad like we weren't going to have to cut to commercials. <laughs> does that make sense? I think that makes it, sense, it right? Like I wasn't does. like I'm not beholden to any advertisers and I'm not because I'm not again, I'm not writing this, you know, he's not Atticus Finch and he's not mm-hmm. the great Santini, you know, he's he's this wonderful combination of you know, those are obviously two amazing characters, but but you see my point. Like there's there's um there's real good and bad. There's times where he's a bit of an asshole. There's times where I'm a bit of an asshole. Um, and I, I tried to, to honor that as much as I could. Let's, uh, um, let's go back to the, the impetus for this memoir. Um, so you, so you said you, this started out as a series of funny Hollywood stories. Was this something that, uh, was presented to you? Did someone say, hey, you need to write this so we buy it? Uh, yeah. Or were you yeah, like, pretty I have much. All the, I've uh, collected all these stories? It was um, a a literary agent got in touch with my then manager and said, I've been looking at this guy and his and his Twitter, and I think he might have a book in him. And um, we had lunch, and... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I had just... Um, it was a while ago. I had just started speechless so 2016 um and i was interested in in maybe sharing the circuitous route i had to acting Mm -hmm. because there were a bunch of different you know i didn't really lean into it until i was 27 28 which doesn't sound particularly old but for this business is is a little advanced there's a lot of people who get on this track when they're 18 and there's people who are 
throwing their hands up and saying, you know what, fuck this when they're 27. (laughs) And I swept in and, uh, (laughs) and took their spot. Um, but you know, I think, uh, I had been interested in, in sort of telling my weird route to, um, not necessarily success. Well, yes, to success, but a, a certain definition of success Mm -hmm. that doesn't look like, um, fancy cars and enormous houses in Beverly Hills, but a, a steady line of work. And, um, my agent noticed that my dad kept coming up in these stories, and um, we talked a little bit more, and I remembered how my father had had attributed a quote to Spencer Tracy, which went, acting is no job for a man. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's that's quite a title, and I don't usually work that way. I don't usually, I don't usually do title first and then write. Um, I usually write something and then I look at it and I go, oh, what's what's this thing called? But going title first gave me these incredible guardrails to work within because it became about jobs, my relation to them, my father's relationship to his jobs, and mm-hmm. our shifting ideas of what it means to be a man. Uh, my father was um, not a boomer. He's silent generation, born in 1937, and that's different. Yeah. That's different than Boomer, and that's different than Greatest Generation. That's its own thing, and they're interesting on a number of fronts because they've only just now been represented in the presidency. This is the first time we've um, ever had a, and probably the last time, given just demographics, we've ever had a president from the uh, from the Silent Generation. Biden is it. My father did not live to see that. They didn't really have, they all served in the military, but most of them served between Korea and Vietnam. So they did a couple years in peacetime. Um, My father was 30 when it was announced that we could no longer trust anyone over the age of 30. (laughs) He's deep into the, he's already like in college on a career track when rock and roll breaks. So there's all sorts of little bifurcation points of youth culture that just pass him by. Um, and I thought that was really interesting and explained a great deal about our relationship. And then the other big thing in terms of jobs and being a man is that my father also had a few jobs in his time, but the only one he ever liked was when he was an NBC page for Jack Parr uh, in in Studio 6A for The Tonight Show with uh, Jack Parr was the second Tonight Show host between Steve Allen and Johnny Carson. And my dad loved that job, but I think there was a sense being the child of immigrants, um, where he felt like this is not responsible. This is not either it's too fun or it's too unstable or right. a little of both. This is not, it's not what real men work. Do. Yeah. It's not real work, you know, and I get that. It sometimes it doesn't feel like real work. Right. Um, you know, which is why running, we want it. <laughs> yes, exactly. But also, but like even when you're like running lines and you've got like pages and pages of dialogue to get through because you're gonna start work on Monday, you there is still something a little more playful to it, even though it's rote learning. Of course. There's still yeah. something a little more playful to it. It's and not digging ditches, for sure. It's not digging ditches. It is not answering phones at a call center. It's a bunch of things it's not. And um, so the book sort of became about our contrasting work ethics and um, uh, how... 
it, it, I'm making it sound a little more sweeping in Great American Memoir than I intended to, but um, what the hell? It's my book. <laughs> it's really a question about like, what do you want for your kids? You know, like, mm -hmm. do you want them to do a little better than you? Do you want them to um, be happier than you were? What is that going to look like for them? Um, and my dad and I uh, came to something eventually, but it took us a while to get there. Sure. It's interesting, too, that like, so hearing this, this sort of gives you parameters for yeah. the stories you're going to tell, the stuff exactly. you're going to tackle. It doesn't, it doesn't become, it doesn't become this sweeping sort of everything but the kitchen sink memoir. No, everything, you know, it, the title was great because I was like, is this about a job or is this about manhood? Because if it isn't about either of those things, then it doesn't belong here. And I had to kill babies writing this thing. Sure. There's an amazing story that I tell all the time. Um, that I had to reduce to a paragraph um, because it really doesn't fit with everything we were doing. You know, it doesn't fit with that title. Yeah. Um, I've probably told you the story about uh, Jamie and I taking shrooms and going to see Fiddler on the Roof at Hollywood High School. <laughs> yes, but I think, you know, listen, we're recording a podcast here. Tell so us. I've just told everybody, but it's a great, um, <laughs> it, 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 it was like a five page chapter and we went back and forth and I was like, you know what, you're, Ugh, this isn't it. This does not belong here. This is um, this is not on topic. Um, so yeah, the title was weirdly um, uh, having those constraints was incredibly liberating. You know what I mean? Yeah, like absolutely. knowing what this book is supposed to be and like then chipping away everything. It doesn't look like an elephant. Yeah, pretty much. Are you? I wanted to. You've you've touched on a couple of things that I wanted to follow up on. One is, are you generally a disciplined writer, uh, but either in the process or when it comes to that kind of like killing darlings? No, I am not. I um, and again, this book fell in my lap in 2016, and we are six years later, and we are there's people who <laughs> conceived, wrote, and published memoirs <laughs> since the lockdown started. <laughs> so I am not one of them. And there were a million things. Work got in the way. Life got in the way. Sure. Um, while I was writing this book about my dad, my mom passed. And that kind of threw me for a loop for a little mm -hmm. while there. Um, there was a lot of things that got in my way. And there was some hesitation. And, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to put something like this out into the universe. But I'm glad I did you know we'll see how it's received but i'm generally glad i did because i think there is a lot of universal truth in the relationship i had with my dad where it's not just a generic um mm -hmm. you know dad doesn't want his son in show business kind of thing it's a little more complicated than that and um and it's also funny and he was funny and he's you know his his love of TV and film and theater landed me in this line of work, sure. whether he meant to or not. And, <laughs> and here's the other thing, and I'm going to find myself telling this story a lot, I bet, but I'll tell it here first. My, what a scoop. I, my, a couple years ago, I Googled my dad, Bruce Bowie, and I found the only thing that came up was a, uh, a rapper in his low 30s who shares the same name, <laughs> who is not my dad. Um, and probably pronounces it Bowie, Southern guy, I think. And um, I was like, wow, you know, that doesn't seem 
all due all due respect to this rapper, I would love for my father to leave a slightly more prolific Google trail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so did you did you see to that? You think the I book hope will so. accomplish I think, that? <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. I think now um, there will be uh, there will be the rapper and uh, the guy who worked in the paper industry for twenty years. Uh, <laughs> we'll make sure uh, to keep mentioning him by name in yeah. every in every post. Every by review. all means, by all means, he uh, yeah the the guy the Republican who loaned his uh, his son two grand to join a union. Uh, <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> Could not have been easy for him. But I mean, this is I I feel like I say this to my parents. You know, I'm I'm lucky enough that they're still around that I can blame them for my life and like listen this unstable work that i've taken on this is because you sat me down to watch creature from the black lagoon when i was seven years old yeah this is on you no 100 100 percent. don't make you know don't let me stay up and watch taxi if you don't want me to crave work in sitcoms you know that's that's how this is going to work but you, you and you touched on this a moment ago um, and this idea of this thematic idea of, you know, what do we want for our children? And I wonder if this is something obviously you think about this as a parent yourself. But yeah. did writing the book start to, you know, put that into relief for you? Did it make things clearer for you? It did. It absolutely did. And I, I it it. I, I think we are absolutely as parents and check this out as Americans supposed to want our kids to have it a little bit easier than we did. Um, and it's not that you want to coddle them necessarily. You just want them to maybe have a little less frustration. Now, is that possible? Probably not. But um, you there shouldn't be this sense of, look, I really had a rough time, so therefore everyone should have a really rough time. I, I don't believe in that, and I don't think it serves anyone. Um, and I think it just leads to generations of resentment. Um, so yeah, it's got me thinking a lot about um, what I want for my kids. And uh, yeah, I would love for them to have a much easier time than, than I did uh, uh, on a number of fronts. And that, you know, life being what it is, is likely not going to happen, but um, I will do everything in my power to, you know, I'm not going to set them up with a trust fund. Fuck that. They should work a little bit, but <laughs> I, I also don't necessarily, you know, uh, need them living in squalor and worse, holding down jobs that they hate. I wouldn't want mm-hmm. that for them. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to sort of dig in on um, is, is, you know, you mentioned that accessing the emotions of all involved in writing this book um, is a process, you know, and it's that that becomes part of the writing process and it's a difficult part of it. Um, what did the process or what did the process look like for you in general? How do you write? When do you write? Is there music on? Um, you know, that sort of technical nuts and bolts stuff. But also then how did you how did you get into the emotional space to write? And how, how was that part of the nuts and bolts process too? Well, that's a good question. Um, I tend to write in the morning, um, but not first thing. 
<laughs> like nine thirty ten God, no. is when I tend to write. Yeah, um, you know, I gotta get the kid. I gotta get the kids to school. <laughs> I gotta have another cup of coffee. We gotta ease into it. I uh, I will I will write to instrumental music. Nothing mm-hmm. with lyrics. And I. Um, but as far as the emotional stuff, this is a really interesting question because. Even if you're writing a memoir and you are the main character in that memoir, you still should follow the show don't tell rules. Mm-hmm. And that's harder when you know exactly what you were thinking yeah. and even what your motivations were behind everything and how things made you feel. But I think it's better to look at it almost from a directorial distance and think, how am I going to communicate this idea there's a there's a a moment in the book where i'm out to dinner with my dad i had dinner with him once a week after the divorce and he tells me a horrifying story a horrifying sexual story from his college years and oh no all i and i i wrote a, a paragraph about how it made me feel and then i cut it and i wrote um i pushed my plate away <laughs> <laughs> That's and great. I looked back at that and I was like, yeah, I think that's the way to handle that. And I don't always follow that throughout mm-hmm. the whole book, but I think it's still important to remember that you don't necessarily need to tell your your reader what to think. They can get there on their own, show them what everything looked like and sounded like and smelled like, and then they can kind of go from, from there on their own. But um, yeah, I, I, you still have to get into a certain emotional space of like, this is going to be honest and this is going to be a little... Um, uh, purgative maybe but um it also doesn't have to be therapy right yeah and, and that's I think, a fine I mean, line to walk yeah and i think that's that's sort of what separates um well at least memoirs that i want to read from memoirs that i don't right i read a few memoirs and i'm not going to talk shit here but i read a few yeah. memoirs ramping up to this and there was a lot of well for one thing there were a lot of ones where like okay your father was a fucking monster blank and I don't blame you for writing this book, but Jesus Christ, um, you're lucky to be alive. Um, and again, that's not what my childhood was, but there was, there was a real sense of like, um, I, I, you know, my father did this and I felt betrayed and wounded and bereft of support. And I was like, okay, you know, I think, what did that look like, though? Did that look yeah. like you, you know, pouring a couple fingers of Jameson? Did you go for a run? Like, what did your, you know, step away for a second. What did your character do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, like, good good writing is going to have that balance, right? Most of it hope. is going to be showing. Most of it is going to be making us feel it. And sometimes it's going to be very bluntly saying, this is what I felt. And, and having if you, both and if of you do that, elements. try to make it, you know, try to make it... Um, there's a moment where I talk about my 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 father's wishes for me and and you know where I was not uh, living up to it and I it gets very telly but I try to make it funny and there's a whole moment mm-hmm. about like my father's weird jealousy about my career is just downright unpatriotic you know and I <laughs> I, I I think that moment works because it's funny you know um, yeah. and because it doesn't uh, have me wallowing in self pity. Um, and sort of finding the amusement in, again, this very patriotic conservative doing something that I think f- flies in the face of the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, I love that. Like, yes, play the levels, you know, play. Yeah, play, play the levels. That's exactly it. You know, make it 
make it a Pixie song. You know, it's a little loud here. It's a little quiet here, you know, and uh, sometimes we're going to let her sing and you just kind of, you know, uh, play with those dynamics. That is um, the perfect segue to the other thing I wanted to ask about. One of the many jobs you've had uh, was as a uh, punk rock musician. Um, tell me about, I assume you've written about music in this book. Yeah. Tell me about writing about music, which I find to be so difficult when you care so much about it. It's hard. It's really hard. And you want to make it sound new and you've got to find your own words for it. And yeah. you're following in the footsteps of people like Lester Bangs and Robert Criscow and, um, you know, giants of rock criticism before yeah. you. And you've got to try to be like, oh, what's how do I make this sound different? And not write from a rock criticism perspective, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you're so thoughtful about music and you want to write about context and you want to write about, you know, craft. But this is a this is a story. Yeah. And it's it's it it the reason it's all in there is because there was a brief period of time where we thought, like, what if we could do the band full time? Now, this was a pipe dream. And as I say in the book, there is no middle class in punk rock. There is Green Day <laughs> or Day Job. <laughs> right. That's that's how that works. Yeah. But um, but all the music stuff is in there because we briefly thought we could, you know, sort of DIY, yeah. DIY our way into a career. Um, I had start I wrote record reviews for my high school newspaper. You know, I wrote reviews of Ramones records as they were coming out in the 80s, you know, and I I read um, I read Robert Criscow in the Village Voice every week and um uh, guys like, um, as I got a little bit older, guys like Scott Polson Bryant, who wrote for Spin for a while, John Bernstein wrote for Spin. Like the, you can tell, like I, I, I looked at bylines. I wasn't just reading reviews. I was looking at like, who's writing this? Who is this guy who writes like this? It is a very touchy thing to write about music because it is not a language everybody speaks. You can't go too far into theory. And I personally cannot go into too far to theory because I can hear a key change, but not much else. You know, I don't, um, I can't hear, you know, like, oh, that's, uh, that's definitely, we, I think we changed into a minor. What just happened? You know, I'm, I, so I don't have that. And then, and then it comes down to how do we describe this guitar sound in a way that doesn't sound incredibly cliche? Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it came out okay, but yeah, it comes up a lot um, throughout the book in terms of what I'm listening to, what I'm trying to write, um, what is shifting my perspectives. Um, I don't remember what your question was. Was it hard to write about music? Was that your question? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Uh, and will you make us a playlist to listen to uh, it's, as we it's, read the um, It's sitting on my computer right now. I've got a, is it? That's a, a, great. I have an Apple version and a, a Spotify version because oh, I'm nothing great. if not inclusive. Yeah. We'll um, follow John yes. Ross Bowie on uh, Instagram. I'm sure it'll it'll show up there. Um, no job for a man. But when this comes out, people will be able to get it. They can already pre-order it, uh, but it'll be in stores when this interview comes out. Um, congrats, John. I'm so excited to read this. I'm, ex I'm excited for you to have done this, too. Thank you, man. That means a great deal coming from you. It really does. Thanks, man. It's just, you're, you're someone whose work ethic I've always really admired, so it actually means a great deal to have you say that. I appreciate it. Uh, come back, talk anytime. Put out a book next month. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. I'm on it. I'm not. I'm really not. That's not going to happen. Bless your heart. But nah, not a chance. All right. Good to talk to you.
Chuck Wendig is here. <laughs> Chuck, thanks for chatting. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so you have got this new book coming out, Wayward, which is a sequel to Wanderers. That's what they tell me. Um, that's what they tell me also. Yeah, good, uh, good. We're on the same page. Listen, you are, you love sequels. You love doing uh, series. I actually don't love doing series. <laughs> that's a, Why do you that's keep doing it? Well, <laughs> some of that gets into like publishing inside baseball. And that was how they used to set up your deals, right? It was like, I have this book and they're like, well, do you have three of them? And you're like, I don't, I don't know that I do, but, and, and you sort of get into this situation where the first book has a lot of energy and the publisher backs it in a big way. And then by the second and third book, by the time you're like writing the third book, you've already seen that the second book didn't perform as well. And the publisher isn't backing that book. So uh, I vowed to get out of that situation. And I was like, I'm going to write a standalone called Wanderers. Uh, and I did write that, but I, I always sort of kept in the back of my head that like, well, I will write a sequel and not a series, but like a, a mm -hmm. follow up to this book if there's an audience for it. And if I have a story for it, immediately like in, in the crass capitalist way, like, did I sell enough copies to make sure that the, the sequel will be a solvent um, item to write? And uh, I was fortunate enough that Wanderers did really well and it had a good audience. And then I was on book tour for Wanderers and I had a pretty legit idea for how the sequel would mm -hmm. go. So I pitched it and it seemed like the right thing to do. But no, I hate, I hate, I don't want to write any more of these. I can't keep falling into it. Well, I want, I want to ask about that, but I want to stay on Wonders for a sec. So it's interesting. I mean, it sounds like this was a concerted effort to do something sort of different, very standalone. Did, did yes. Wonders as a book, did the writing of it feel different to you? Yes, very different. Awesome. Everything about it was different. Well, uh, first of all, the process to begin was different. Usually I'm an outliner and this was not a book that I outlined. It was a book that uh, for such a huge monster yeah. uh, plotty book, I didn't outline a word of it. I wrote a few sort of like bridging chapters. And that's actually how we pitched it on those chapters. Um, and then, you know, I was before this, I was a freelance writer before I was writing novels. And then even writing novels, I sort of brought that freelance kind of uh, work ethic to the table where I was like, you know what? that whole button chair 2000 words a day like the thing we tell ourselves the <laughs> mythology we tell ourselves about writers and uh wanders did not get written that way sometimes it was like a 300 word day sometimes it was like a 5000 word day it was like these fits and starts and sometimes i'd have to like back off for a week to do some research on a topic to make sure i was going to get that right um so it was a very erratic book and by the time i was like a week outside of deadline on the book and i had written i think 180,000 words and i was nowhere near an ending and so I like contacted my editor and I'm like, you know what? It's fine. I'm going to, I have a week. I can still do this because I'm going to do like a time jump thing. And I'm going to really sort of bring it all together. And she's like, that's, that, don't do any of that. That's a terrible idea. And she's like, take as long as you need to and write the book as big as it needs to be. And I was like, are you high right now? That's not a thing I normally hear from an editor. So yeah. uh, she did not appear to be high at that moment. And she uh, had the right advice. And then I added another hundred thousand words to that book. It was a two hundred eighty thousand word book. So, uh, and it was it was honestly the right decision. I think that it ended up being as epic and big as it needed to be. That's so interesting. So, so why why approach this book differently? What had you been doing, and what made this one different? I you know I used to be not only said outlining, but I would um, tend to write in present tense, third person mm -hmm. present. Um, my books were usually leaner. Like I think the longest book I had written before this one was 120,000 words. And mm. usually my books were in that like 60 to 90,000 word. I wanted that like short, sharp shock of a thriller sort of. So a lot of my books actually had that kind of thriller pacing. Like, let's just keep the plot 
moving and the story going and you know about wanderers was just a more ponderous tale and i felt like i just needed to take my time with it so it was a different story and you know you sort of learn at that point that i don't know how to write books <laughs> that's like yeah it's a really good it's a good lesson to learn it's a hard lesson to learn but it's exceptional to know that i don't know what i'm doing well uh, i was i was looking at your um blog here and you have this entry from earlier in october about why i don't talk as much about writing anymore oh yeah i thought that was really interesting do you want to talk about that just for a second then we can sort of dig in on it yeah yeah i used to really kind of talk about writing a lot like my, the origins of the blog are you know prior to ever having even a wordpress i had a roommate designed for me a static html page that, that i would update by hand uh, and i had no metrics on it i didn't know what was going on with sure. it so i would just yeah right it was just <laughs> it like was for you. it was just for me and it was i was yelling at me about me <laughs> about writing and my frustrations in, in the, the career i was failing to really get going so uh, when the time came that I actually turned it into WordPress, it was almost like turning the lights on and finding out that you're in a room with like a hundred people because I had readers and I didn't know that. And suddenly there were comment sections and people were like, Hey, we're here. We've been here the whole time. I'm like, right. Oh no. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> and now, now that would be a horrible thing to really to find out because the internet is such a scary place to learn that you've been talking for like five years and you know <laughs> people have actually been paying attention to you. Um, so, you know, a lot of those early posts were about writing. And uh, sort of over time, as I've gotten to this point now, the writer I am, um, I know less and less about writing as I go. Um, and I find that that's um, a good way to be. Uh, and so, why, you know, I don't necessarily feel like I want to tell people how to do their thing. Um, and not only that, but the Internet is increasingly more contentious with how it approaches anybody trying to give you advice. And I always um, didn't, you know, I never, ever wanted to be too precious about writing advice. I was always trying to approach it with a sense of humor and a sort of a sort of a gonzo bombastic, like, hey, this is all nonsense. So let's make it sound a little bit like nonsense and be, have fun with it. But some people still took it very, very seriously and like the, they do on the, the old internet. So it's like, maybe it's time to just stop, stop doing that. Um, that's interesting. I mean, it, it sounds like early on, you were really exploring your own process. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it sounds also like you had a process that, worked for you and i yes. think often like that's the only thing we can sort of speak to right yep. um what was that process early on and then how does it evolve into <laughs> i i don't know anything because i think yeah. that happens to a lot of us as you know, when we've been doing this for a while yeah it started off like doing the i would write pretty steadily two thousand words a day monday through friday get up at you know whatever six o'clock and be out by you know writing by seven um, and so, you know, and somehow a book was produced that way. Um, <laughs> inevitably you would just like slow and steady wins the race. There's a book. So, but over time things change, not only to, you know, I have a kid. And so his schedule is like, yeah, that thing you think you're going to be doing right now, you are not doing that right now. Um, and the books became different and the contracts became different. And my deadlines got a little like, you know, cause early on I was writing, well, in freelance, I, you know, I had really tight deadlines, but then when I started writing books, I was doing like four or five books a year. Um, and some of them, I mean, it was, sometimes it was a four book published year too. So they were all coming out sometimes the following year. Um, and that over time, you start to learn that you're really just competing with yourself on a bookshelf. So, you know, Barnes and Noble or, or any indie bookstore only has so much room for you. You're not Tolkien. They're not going to be like, no, no, we've got a shelf for you, uh, Mr. King. It's totally fine. So uh, I didn't want to sit there and, and have my books beat each other up on the shelves. Um, so, you know, the contracts became like I was suddenly writing one book a year. Uh, and so I could take more time. And I had, uh, so some of this stuff 
you know, my change in, in process also comes out of just sort of having the privilege to being able to do that. Sure. Um, but I think better books um, are the result of that too. But do you, along those lines, I mean, I, I looking at the number of books you have published. Too um, many. Yeah, wait, I should stop. <laughs> I, some would say the right amount. Um, I, uh, the, well. There's there's this thing that my writing partner and I talk about a lot, which is like, we have so many stories to tell and we're not going to be able to do that in our lifetime. And yes. this gift of being able to write and publish four books a year yeah. is both a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah. Um, so so at, at the point when it comes to narrowing that down, when it comes to one book a year or, yeah. or one book every couple of years even, what does that look like in your brain? How do you start to think about this is the one that's next? Yeah, I, I compartmentalize it a little easier because like when you're kind of running into that, like, all right, I've got a ramp up promo for this book while I'm writing this book. And then as that winds down, I'm now ramping up promo for the next book. And okay, it's now a cover review here and a cover review there. And mm-hmm. you're sort of doing all this stuff. <clears throat> but um, it's just tougher. And you sort of approach burnout, I think, at that point, because you feel like, the walls start coming down between the stories. You're like, wait, which one am I writing now? Who yeah. are these people? Um, whereas having the time to not only write the books, but then having a, a long lead time on getting them out the door um, allows you to build a little more buzz up and sort of get people a little more invested in it and, you know, uh, hook them early on with uh, some of that early stuff. Like Wander has really benefited from some very early stuff. I think it came out in July, but we started really talking about it in October the year prior. Mm. So it had a really nice, like, whereas before that, I didn't have that. It was like, you know, you'd announce the book there and then four to five months later, the book yeah. was coming out. I just knew it was really a fast cycle. So um, good in, in a generative way. And I think some of this too comes down to the fact that in terms of both giving advice and just having being a writer and living the writer's life is some of this comes down to being a young writer versus a mm-hmm. middle career to an older writer. You start to not only change who you are because of what you do and believe in your patterns, but also you develop the ability to maybe carry an audience a little longer. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe that time is a little more fruitful. Whereas early on, sometimes being generative and just, just sort of loopy and like, Oh, let's throw it all out the door and see what happens. You know, get it out there is, has some uh, value to the younger writer. Yeah. It makes sense. Is there, I mean, that's sort of the marketing side of it, right? Like that's the selling ourselves as writer side. Is there a difference in the creative side? I mean, you obviously have to think more now about what story am I going to tell this year? Because I'm going to live with it longer. It's not going to be quite as disposable is not the right word, but fleeting. Right. Yeah, I I do think of it that way. I spend more time with the books, um, living in them. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. so much of writing you know, and you learn this sometimes right at the beginning, but you really don't understand it until you kind of write a lot. You, you understand that so much of writing just isn't writing. <laughs> um, is planning and thinking. I mean, just thinking alone can take up a great deal of your day. Just like, oh, uh, just like constantly like rock tumblers, just stuff moving around your head all day. And, you know, I have a little more advantage for doing that. Now, of course, ironically, I mean, I'm still, for as much as I'm like, I used to write four yeah. books a year. Now I'm only writing one. Isn't that a great benefit? I mean, Wander is still 280,000 words, which is essentially <laughs> for small mouth. So, I mean, and, maybe and you're also doing a million other things. I yeah. assume, you know, comics yeah. and, and. Uh, thankfully, no comics right now. I have, I'm quiet on that front. But yeah, okay. there's, there's, yeah, there's film and TV stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's always kind of 
kind of spin your wheels and getting something going. So how are you managing your time these days? This is a question we get a lot from writers who, whether they have day jobs and are trying to write yeah. or whether they're writers who are working on multiple projects, what does it look like in a practical sense for you? I still do the thing where I get up in the morning and come out and I have a shed, like a writer's shed. I have a separate mm-hmm. office that I go to. That's great. Um, and it used to be, I would come pretty much right out the door, but now it's like kind of getting a kid ready for school and lunches and practice and all that stuff. So the time is a little different, especially when summer happens. Summer happens and the, the schedule just unspools like a, just like a, a ruptured organ. So uh, it's now I come out and I, you know, check email and do whatever I need to do. And hopefully not social media because that's a, a, a just a doom hole that you fall into for a little while. Um, and then it's usually I'll write until I'm done, which is whatever that means is whatever that means. I don't try to hit a specific target. I just try to feel good about the day's work. Yeah. Um, and that's usually done before the afternoon really starts. And so afternoon is for the administrative nonsense, like emails and so many emails, too many emails. That's smart. I'm curious about that time between getting the kid off to school and starting to work, you know, getting yourself into that zone. Yeah. Um, What do you do for that? I mean, again, like habit, habit is a a great help in that, but you know, there are times when you need to get into that zone and, and it's difficult. Is there anything you can do to trick yourself into it? Uh, I'm sure there are. I don't trick my, I just do it. Like I, it's like, I, uh, I understand that most days are a cold start engine and Mm -hmm. usually the act of simply putting words on a page will help. So, you know, even just rereading the day that what you did the day before will kind of start to you know, loosen the gears a little bit and help it all kind of move, shake the rust off. Um, but just the act of putting words on paper, like it's like with editing. I, I had someone ask me the other day about like, how do you, like, it's paralyzing, like editing anything. When you get a big edit, a little edit, it just feels like uh, I can't do this. And I was like, I just feel like poking it does it just like find like that. I'm going to change this word. I don't like that word mm-hmm. here. I'm going to change this word. And it just feels like that one tiny tweak that I did gives me agency and power over it. And then I'm kind of like, well, you poke this word, poke that word, and so you're moving a sentence. And now you're like, well, I can tackle this chapter. And the whole thing kind of comes into focus just with a little energy and action. Um, yeah. But it just takes that that sort of will to do it, which is sounds silly. You're like, you know, it's just not climbing a mountain. Like you're just like, just move a word. But sometimes that moving a word is really daunting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it sounds like, you know, as a, craftsman you've sort of you you have this down you know you you know yourself and what you're capable of what are what are the challenges for you the challenges are as it all changes like when you have one of those days where you know because like you feel I increasingly feel like a different writer every day like there's Mm -hmm. different things I want or different things I'm trying to achieve and um, slower, more ponderous, thoughtful. Like it's, and that always worries me because I'm like, oh, I feel like I should be really go, go, go. Like I should be getting this all out of, out of my system. And so the challenges are just kind of, you know, getting used to like having the confidence in, of understanding like, well, I am a craftsman. I've done this enough that every day is chaos, but that's chaos. Like I've been through and I've understood it and I've done it before. And so, um, you know, it's like a rope through a dark forest. You're just trying to hold onto it and walk your way through. Yeah. Uh, and what are the, what's the fun part for you? 
Oh, uh, I it's not, it's not stupid, but I actually really like writing. A lot of writers don't seem to really like writing, and I understand it. And I don't find it like happy making. I'm not like, Woo! <laughs> but I mean, like, it's very satisfying to me. I really enjoy yeah. um, just that sort of like tinkering with a sentence and making it sound right and trying to hit on a certain thing. And I, I like the feeling of going back and reading work that I thought was going to be terrible. Cause like, I, I just finished a first draft of a book and I was like, so many days I would write this thing and I'm like, this sucks, right? Like, this is bad. I feel, I don't feel good about it. I feel like that was wrong. It was bad. Then I would go and read it the next day. I'm like, what the hell was I worried about? I feel like this is, this is pretty good. It's just a little different. Like, I feel like I, it works. Like I'm, I'm not mad at this. Yeah. Uh, and then the editor was pretty good with all of it. So I didn't even really, have any, <laughs> she wasn't like, no, no, I agree. You were right. The first right. Time. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Which I'm sure, you know, they, they also say that sometimes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that, that suggests to me a question that I used to get a lot, especially when we're doing the live uh, podcast from new writers and they want to know, how do you trust yourself? How yeah. do you trust that the decisions you're making on the page are right, in the story are right, the words that you're putting down are right? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's a good answer there, but I think the easy answer is you don't really have to, at least not initially, because writing is for most careers and things you're doing incredibly forgiving if you let it be it's not like a live podcast where you're like well this is it <laughs> this is your shot you know like you're not on stage where whatever you're doing that day is what the audience is going to see and you do it right or you do it wrong and you get captured magic yeah. you did i'm like you know you get as many shots at this goal as you'd like with this book or the story or this paragraph whatever you're writing you have a lot of chances with it so you can always go back and be like well, that was a real stinker of a day i'm gonna go back and I'm going to tweak it and fix it. Yeah. And, you know, you can be, I mean, so many people have like, I'm going to scrap the book I'm writing and rewrite it and it comes out better. And that's like a really uh, wonderful, no, I mean, that takes time. That's not just like, you don't just get like, right. I'm going to pause reality <laughs> and, you know, live in this weird, you know, interstitial time and do it. But you still have that chance in a way that really other jobs don't afford you. So um, even painting, like you're going to, putting paint on a canvas is going to be less forgiving. So you, there's just so much you can do as a writer to practice that and iterate as many times as you want. So even when you don't trust yourself, the work will kind of allow you to fix it and change it. And then maybe later on, as you've done it more and more, you develop a sense of like, well, I get the patterns and I know a little more about who I am as a writer. Knowing who you are as a writer is the hardest uh, and best, most important thing. Well, and also, as we were saying before, you know, knowing that that's going to change too. Yes. You know, you're going yes. to evolve. You're going to, you're going to, find and drop habits um absolutely yeah um let's let's talk about story creation yeah. for a minute um you know i don't we can talk specifically about wanderers and wayward and like what is the story is there a story you're chasing is there a story that you see pop up throughout your work uh oh, that's a good question no i don't know um I don't know. I like to find the empathy in damaged people. And I like to find out people who are, um, I mean, really so many of the, it's very cliche, but so many of the stories we cleave to and we write and we, you know, read and watch are about like people trying to figure out who they are. It's not always what you maybe see at the beginning, but by the end of it, it's like someone sort of coming into their own and recognizing I'm the person who's going to run as a coward. I'm the person who's going to save these people. I'm the person who's 
going to chase their dreams. I'm the person who's going to kill their dreams. I'm the person, whatever. It's like, there's kind of like settling into something. You're watching things settle. Um, so I really enjoy that aspect of it, finding out because it's part of the, the joy of discovery as a writer is just sort of learning things about a story as you expose. And I think really at the end of the day, um, story isn't anything without character. So many writers like to lead with plot and yeah. he's like events happen and then in a world. And then, you know, you like, really it's character, character is sort of everything. They're why we're here. They're why we're, you know, on the, on the page or on the screen, it's why we are coming to the theater or go to the bookstore. So, uh, leading with that and trying to be character heavy is always one of those things I'm uh, most interested in and then just, just messing with them. And I really love <laughs> the characters who are, like the Molotov cocktail thrower characters, like something that like the good place, like a really fine point on with that, like character who I really don't know what they're going to do next. Yeah. There's characters who are entities of chaos, whether they're a lead character, supporting character, someone who's going to be like, I'm going to set fire to the scene. And now you're going to have to deal with that, both as a writer uh, and then the reader, because <laughs> if I don't really know what they're going to do next, the reader definitely doesn't know. Totally. What they're gonna do. hearing about the way you approached wanderers without an outline you can i can understand like uh living through that process of discovery but yeah. with previous books where you had outlined do you get that same feeling of discovery when you're outlining what do your outlines look no, like they i don't like i understand yeah. outlines help with sort of framing out you know if i have an ending and how how am i going to get there just sort yeah. of the the plot beats that get you there, but they don't always hit the character beats. I mean, they, it touches on it. A good outline touches on it. And like a lot of the outlines that I've written are not for public consumption. They're just me sort of rambling for a couple pages about like how this is supposed to work. So, I mean, they'll get there, but it's not like a big, that's not really where I'm shining the light. It's mostly so I have like a, a, a ladder to climb, but like in the book itself is where I'm going to figure out who these people really are. Mm -hmm. um, and usually your second draft is when you're going to, you know, polish that, so to speak. Um, sometimes you get there, um, mm -hmm. but not generally in the outline. Well, with it, that with that character stuff, I feel like, I don't know. I, I, I've been doing some teaching lately and I often talk about how like, that's the part of the process where you, you are an actor, right? You're embodying these characters, you're crawling around in their heads. Right, right. Um, and so I can see where like the second draft is where that would start to take shape. You'd start to yes. understand them. Yeah, there's a thing I, I do sometimes. <clears throat> I, I, I like I've always referred to it as the, the character test drive, mm -hmm. where I will, if like, I have a character in mind that I want to use in a book for some reason, I'll write a meaningless chapter with them, something with conflict in it, right? Like we're at a store and someone wants the product they want and they can't get it. Something stupid. It doesn't have to be a life or death situation, but like in under duress, how do they act? What do they yeah. say? And you start to find dialogue patterns. You start to find like their reaction moments. And like, are they going to be the type of person who's going to repress this situation? Are they going to person who's going to aggressively pursue this problem? Um, and then just doing that, spending 2000 words in a way that's not, it's like, you know, non-canonical apocryphal <laughs> yeah. storytelling. This is not real Jesus. This is some other Jesus you can read about <laughs> later. Getting that sort of into the book then. And sometimes you actually, then I find that I'm borrowing pieces so from that, a line they said or a descriptive thing that they did. Yeah. So um, it's just sort of one of those things that it's almost like a training wheels for the character lets you explore them a little more. It's a great exercise. I was talking to a um, 
screenwriter, TV writer, writer recently who started as an actor, still is an actor. And she said, you know, she even before she knows what the story is, she'll kind of put these characters in a diner or somewhere yeah, and just right. have them like listen to them, talk to each yeah, other. Let them talk. Yeah, yeah that's, it's really interesting. Um, is the process different? You know, you've done some licensed work, too. Is the yeah. process different for that kind of work? <clears throat> well, it is for outlining. Because they really, sure. I mean, they yeah, obviously yeah. care very much about the outlines um, and whatever synopsis or treatment you're going to provide them. Um, I don't know that the actual writing is significantly different outside of the fact that when I wrote the first Star Wars book, uh, I originally had three months to write the first draft of the first book. And then they moved the publication up by two months. And so that also moved my deadline up by two months. So I had to write oh the God. first draft of that in one month. So that was... That was like one of those like, well, can I still, I mean, can I really bring this? Can I do this in my old freelancing days? And I, I did it. I did it. But wow. Sure. It's, yeah. But yeah, it's a marathon. It's, it's a exhausting. Marathon. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was like, this is so crushing right now. I'm going to burn out. Did you have, uh, an, we wrote some uh, Star Wars books around the same time. Yeah. Um, yep. And did you have the feeling that we did that it felt like playing with toys as a kid? Oh, it did. Yeah. And I didn't because a lot of people would ask me later, they'd be like, were you like, was there a lot of pressure? Like, oh, well, you're writing Star Wars. But I'm like, well, there wasn't because I was having too much fun and I had to do it so fast. Sure. So there was like no pressure. I was just like, this is amazing. I am having a very good time. Uh, and then it was only after it came out, everyone was like talking about how important it was and like, what's the sequel going to be like? And then people getting mad about certain things and people loving other things. It was like, oh, now I feel it. There it is. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's that inverted pyramid pressing down in the, between my shoulder blades. Oh, no shit. Okay. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's very much the Star Wars experience. Yes. I think it's also yeah. the Marvel experience. For um, yes, it is. I've done, yeah. Yeah, I've done Marvel. A lot yep. of these yep. things. The, no yeah. one hates a thing like a fan hates a thing. <laughs> no, that was the thing. Like when, when I did work for Marvel, they offered me, they were like, you can do either this is before I did any Star Wars comics. They were like, mm -hmm. we have uh, two comics we need a writer for. We need either Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. so it'll connect to the TV show and it'll be kind of a big centerpiece comic or we have Hyperion, a character no one really knows or cares about and we don't know anything about what we want to do with that. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's the one I want because yeah. like, the other one sounds like a lot of pressure and you're going to be paying very uh, strong attention to what I'm doing there. But Hyperion sounds like you don't know anything. And so I have a big, big playground on which to play. And you're like, yeah, basically. I'm like, great, let's do that. And then no one paid attention and I had a lot of fun. So yeah, fun. absolutely. That's really funny. Um, what is, what are your, what are your genre credentials? What was the stuff you loved as a kid that sort of got you interested in both genre and writing? Oh man. Um, like what did I read? Like, uh, yeah. What did you read? What did you consume? Oh man. I consumed, uh, like what's Douglas in the Adams. DNA? Yeah, right. Uh, Douglas Adams was an early um, read. Dungeons and Dragons. Even, I mean, I read Dungeons and Dragons years before I played it. Like I had the oh, books. Funny. I was just like, these are amazing. But I didn't have a group, so we just, I would just sit there and read like the Monster Manual or Dungeon Master's Guide, like imagining in my head, one day I will have a game with Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons. Um, you know, and then I ended up freelancing for ten years in the game industry, so that was a thing too. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I got into horror kind of maybe around twelve, age twelve. Um, mm -hmm. Wasn't so much Stephen King a little bit, but um, Robert McCammon's books, uh, oh, Clive sure. Parker, Poppy Bright. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, those were sort of the, some of the big early things. Obviously, games later on and horror films were, you know, I really adored. And um, yeah, all that stuff. Star Wars. I mean, you know, obviously, like that's yeah. feels like we're of a certain age. <laughs> yeah, we're of a certain age. Like, did you breathe air and consume water? <laughs> right. Yes, well, you enjoyed Star Wars. Did you? Exactly. And are you, do you, I mean, I know like there's no conscious sort of, 
I want to do my take on this. But do you feel that DNA in your writing these past, you know, 25 years? I mean, a little bit like I both in a way that I am aware of it and also trying to struggle with it to some degree because I don't it's tough because I always say there's really no original stories. It's not like I'm like, well, I have the idea that will blow everyone away. This is the no, no one has seen this before. There's no stories that no one has seen before. Um, I think ideas I always say are treated like gems, but they're costume jewelry. It's totally how you wear them. <laughs> so, you know, in, in writing a book like Wanders, which is about a sort of an end of the world scenario and an end of the world pandemic. And uh, the stand is a favorite book. So like I am, I am in conversation with the stand with that book. Like <laughs> sure. I am trying to not be like, I want to just tell my version of it. Uh, it's something that's separate from it and has a very different sort of path and outcome. But at the same time, like you can't, how you avoid that comparison, unless you're going to write sure. station 11, which is a very different sort of DNA in terms of how it structures its story. But although I don't know that it's so different that you can't draw the parallels between the two. Um, so, I mean, I'm literally referencing like the stand in the book. I'm like, well, I assume the stand is a book that exists in this world. I don't want it to be like this, the zombie story that zombies have never existed. <laughs> right. Like I want it to be like, but I also don't want it to be twee, like a Shaun of the Dead. Everyone's going to reference the stand all the time. Right. So it's just trying to find that balance of like, I want to be in conversation with that book and find the places that I would do a thing differently, but also still just make a thing. Like I'm still at the end of the day trying to grapple with all the anxieties and things that I'm dealing with in this mm -hmm. current era that were not present really then. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's weird. yeah, I think that's, that's something I really found interesting about wanderers is, is you really were exploring things that were important to you. It felt like, um, yeah. which leads me to, you know, when you have an idea for the sequel and you've explored these ideas already. Yeah. What what questions are you asking yourself? How do you find your way in? I mean, you said you had this idea and you thought, okay, I can do this. But how did that even start to bubble up in you? Well, I mean, some of it is just, again, going back to that character thing, right? Like I have these characters, they're in this world. Most of them are still alive. And I think that's, you know, interesting to me. I don't think the story, I think the story ended, but there's clearly another story with these characters if we want to find it. So that was sort of my first just basic impetus. Like, where are they going to go and what, are the, what journey is interesting for them to explore? And, and it doesn't feel necessarily redundant to the first book, but explorative and build, builds off of that. Um, and then some of that is just figuring out sort of like, what are you going to hit on? What are you not going to hit on? But then, you know, a, an actual pandemic happens. and You're like, oh, no. Oh, OK. Like, you know, I wrote a <laughs> pandemic novel before a pandemic happened. So like maybe now I'll write a post pandemic novel in the midst of an actual global <laughs> pandemic. So that's what I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to make this in a weird sort of a horrible way instead of escapism. Like, yes, the world has effectively ended, but the pandemic is over. So now what? Um, so maybe it's weirdly grimly aspirational that we're going to get past this thing. So um, <laughs> that was a factor too, just trying to figure out how to grapple with like all the stuff that's happened since I wrote Wanders. Like I didn't think the world would be yeah. such a dramatically different world from the point that I wrote that book, but it, it is. So I felt like that was some, now I'm talking about kind of new stuff and new problems and, and, you know, exacerbated versions of the things I thought would be <laughs> over when I wrote Wanderers. They were, they're not spoiler warning. <laughs> um, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, does it, I, I can imagine, you know, as you, you, first of all, did you approach, wayward in the same way did you not outline did you discover it on the page? correct 
Yeah, I, I did. And the, the writing was even weirder because like I, <clears throat> it was the first thing I really wrote in the midst of the pandemic. I really couldn't write at the start of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It was not outside of blog posts and tweets. It yeah. wasn't happening. Um, I felt like I had broken a leg and I really just couldn't even walk on it. So um, I was editing. I had the book of accidents to edit and I had my middle grade book and I, editing was doing good things to my brain. So I was just going to lean into that. And then, you know, anytime I kind of try to write, like, it'd be like, nope, it's just not, it's not there. And I like, I famously, again, work ethic wise, I would write through pretty much anything, any crisis in my life. I'm like, well, I'm going to even write a hundred words that I will write. So I wasn't writing anything. So I didn't really start wayward until I think the fall after the pandemic had started. So October, something like that. And uh, I would write day to day and some days would be prolific and some days would be you know just a few hundred words and I kind of fugued out like I didn't I was not super connected like I like while I was writing I felt really connected to it but then like usually when I'd be writing a book I would leave that book and it would kind of consume me for the rest mm-hmm. of the day and I'd be kind of living so much so that my wife would be like are you here or are you in <laughs> sure. bookland I'm, like, oh, I'm in bookland I'm sorry so I wasn't really in bookland I was just sort of like popped out of it and then the next day I would land and be like, I don't know what the hell I wrote yesterday. So I would have to go back and read it. And then by the time I turned it in, I would tell, like, I told my editor, I'm like, I literally have no idea how this is. I have not read it. I don't know what I did. I can't even promise you this is not a Jack Torrance all work and no play situation. So <laughs> please be kind. And thankfully, like, it turned out like it was an, actually a fairly well put together book, I guess. Uh, and she was pretty happy with it. But I really didn't. <clears throat> when I like reread it for editing, I was honestly surprised that some scenes even existed that's wild <laughs> super weird the weirdest <laughs> writing experience of my life like, it's probably not healthy but welcome to i guess derealization <laughs> and there's i mean there's no way to recreate that probably for the better <laughs> probably but, yeah, for the better yes but like is the as you as you went to reread it for the editing yeah is it recognizable as your work like that's sort yeah. of like a, yeah a and it was way to put it but. but it was like it it was the weird benefit to it as i always say with editing one of the greatest sort of gifts you can give yourself as a writer is to get to the point where it feels like some other asshole wrote this thing because <laughs> when that happens it gets you kind of can snap into that you know that whole like a uh, critic mindset like oh someone wrote this and i'm here to think about it and so i can think about it in a way that i'm not attached to it emotionally because I didn't really remember writing it in the first place, I wasn't particularly attached <laughs> to it emotionally. I was like, I can really get into this thing. I can actually yeah. start tearing this thing apart now. So uh, it was easier to do that. But what? A, like, in some ways, maybe I should try to achieve that again. But I, I wrote a book since and it did not happen. I kind of That's remembered it so as I went. Interesting. Yeah. How strange. Um, and and we you know we had started talking about you know this phenomenon of sequels and and series. Um, and how that doesn't, you know, you're not setting out to do that kind of thing, but yeah. that's sort of the nature of book deals. It, do you th- is that due to the genre you're writing in? I think, yeah, for a long time, fantasy and science fiction in particular, because even while I was always, in my mind, writing horror, no one was calling things horror for a long time. That was a yeah. <clears throat> sort of an anathema. We don't, we don't talk about Bruno kind of a thing. So um, I, you know, fi- fantasy, science fiction really thrives on series. I think they're constantly mm. trying to be like, it's not just throw spaghetti at the wall, but let's throw three pieces of clumps of spaghetti at the wall and hope they all stick and everyone really wants to, to, to read all three of these things. But of course, generally isn't how it happens. And generally the way publishers support these books is kind of messed up, but 
yeah, that I think it was part of the the genre thing that that happened. That makes sense. And I guess was the book of accidents in in reaction to having done all these series or or uh, wanders was book of accidents was yeah it was like that was the deal with going to del rey was sort of like i really want to write you know standalone books and so uh, everything yeah. i've got coming up from them too is just individual books just books <laughs> so it sounds wonderful <laughs> it thrills me just to think about like it's one book and then i can walk away from it if i want to it's great um oh that's really exciting to hear and i think you know with in relation to the thing we talked about earlier where you know you have to slow production yeah right and you concentrate on one thing you're getting to tell more and different kinds of series more and different kind of stories and yeah. more in different kinds of ways um is there stuff that over the years has gotten away from you are there books that just didn't take are there stories that you're dying to tell but the moment still hasn't come stuff like yeah, that yeah yeah there's definitely things that like i've either pitched that didn't quite click or <clears throat> things that were too close to something else that was already coming out or mm. you know stuff like that or just one of those unfortunate like i had um an author not choose to not blur book of accidents because like oh my god i'm writing a book it's different oh, enough or it's <laughs> similar to this book right now and i don't i can't even read it i'm gonna read this book because i'm afraid i'm gonna borrow yeah. from it or if i blurb it people are gonna accuse me from stealing from it so like i don't want to getting near this I was like oh totally totally get that um so I mean, yeah totally there's always like you know like going back to the topic about ideas one of the most I think popular questions that we get right is like where do you get your ideas but like I'm like how do you make them stop is the better question <laughs> like I don't Absolutely. I don't ever not have ideas ideas are not my yeah. problem it's all about execution I'm like it's I'm like a there's no atmosphere I'm just constantly pelted by these meter meteorites and I would <laughs> like them to stop maybe so uh yeah so definitely like i have a, just a world of stories i would love to tell yeah. so that's funny and and i live in a similar sort of space right there they just keep coming how do we make that stop right um how do you how do you know when one is taking hold of them? oh that's easy and i i learned this later but like again going back to that like precious gems versus costume jewelry like Everyone always like, well, write your ideas down, write them down. And I don't, I did that. I was like, I meticulously keep them in notes and notepad or on a little, little book. And uh, I would find that they were garbage. So I was like, you know, I'm going to stop writing them down. I'm going to treat them all like they're just uh, annoying r- raccoons that I'm trying to chase away from my porch. Uh, <laughs> so it's the ones that bother me yeah. that I didn't write down that still demand to be heard that I find interesting. So I've got like usually a, a number of those that are angry enough to be, you know, sort of an idea thunderdome, like they're, they're coming out and they, they rule idea town. So those are the ones I listen to. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that won't stop knocking. Yeah. 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 You can tell the difference. Yes. Um, uh, I want to talk for a second about this uh, new book that you have coming out next year. Um, The, the writing advice. Oh Yeah. Yeah. Since we talked about how you don't give writing advice. I don't give it. This is my last, is my last hurrah. But I loved I loved sort of your take on this and, and the purpose of it. Do you want to talk about that just for a sec? Yeah. Uh, so the book is called Gentle Writing Advice. And I was originally supposed to be, I was contracted to write a book about genre that was a sequel to Damn Fine Story, my previous writing book. So it would have taken the Damn Fine Story sort of approach that I laid out in that and tackled sort of how we tell stories in genre spaces and dealing with the uniform bones between those skeletons, right? Like they look like different animals, but there's some shared bones. Uh, and then the, 
first of all, Writer's Digest went insolvent and then bankrupt. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I was like, well, that's done. But then they got bought by Penguin Random House. And like, we actually still would like that book. And I was like, oh, okay. But enough time had passed. I did not want to write that book. <laughs> so, uh, and I, again, I was also like, you know, the internet's fighty in the pandemic times. And I don't want to make any statements about genre anymore. Like that's a, genre is a wild west territory. And I don't feel like I want to try to conquer that. So I was like, I started to try to write this genre book and it ended up being a whole different thing. <clears throat> so I realized I was writing not that book. And then the book I turned in was Gentle Running Advice, which is, you know, for so long, I think there are authors who um, we have, I, I, like when I was starting out, right, the, the, all the advice was sort of soft literary advice, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's sort of like muse inspiration driven even when I was learning writing at college, it was very much like the literary path. Like you do these journals and you teach and uh, the people who are like writing the books, books, the hacks, the people who are like mid-list writers, they weren't being spoken to or about. But then you read, you know, like Lawrence Block's sort of writing advice. And it's very like practical, down to earth, somewhat harsh writing advice. <clears throat> and I think that was necessary. And essentially I was giving that advice too. Uh, but the internet being the internet, that's like, now you don't, we don't lack for that. That's we're, we're good on that advice. That is 100% the type of right advice you will always get is like ass and chair 2000 words a day, or you're going to die. You're not a real <laughs> writer if you don't write every day. And, uh, I really thought, especially with a pandemic when I was not able to write, I was having these, it was challenging my own sort of vision of how I do this thing. So I really wanted to speak to that and write something that was more, uh, getting back to that, like sort of softer, not necessarily like just listen to the clouds, they'll, they'll inform you. But that sense of like, hey, maybe there are different ways to do things and maybe there's different ways to challenge a process and to challenge a lot of those old chestnuts of writing advice we um, are so, so uh, we consider so sacred. That's great. Uh, I, I really love that. I mean, I think the, there's something in between, right? Like yes. the, there, those extremes have existed for so long and it feels like those are the loudest versions yes. of writing advice when most of us live in the middle. We do. Finding our own process. Yeah. Like it's like what I was saying earlier, how so much of writing is not writing. Yeah. Which is like a, the gentle piece of advice. So much of writing is not writing. But then the sort of like harsh cherry on top of that is like, but writing is still writing. Like you can't, <laughs> right. you still have to, it doesn't matter if you didn't put the, the keep the fingers on the keyboard or the pen on the page and you tell the story. So both are true. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that's, that's out next spring, right? Yeah. Uh, June, I think. Okay. Um, and wayward, uh, um, is out. yes. Uh, mid, yeah. mid, mid November folks can yeah. pre-order it right now, which they absolutely yeah. should do. Um, we'll end as we always do by asking you what you are into these days. What are you reading? That's getting you excited. What are you watching on television or in the movies? That's getting you excited. Oh man. I just watched barbarian last I night. I saw you tweet about this. I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. I'm oh so my excited. God. Well, I will give nothing away uh, for you or the audience, but it is like one of those things where you're like, I think I know what's going on. I don't, I don't now. Awesome. And it just <clears throat> took a hard left turn into, and then another hard right turn. And it's constantly zigzagging against, to like a really gonzo ending. So um, that's definitely worth reading or uh, watching. Um, you know, I read a lot of uh, stuff for um, research. So a lot of nonfiction. I'm reading um, Ed Young's, rereading, I should say, Ed Young's An Immense World, which is about sort of animal senses. Oh, neat. Uh, which is fascinating. Um, I just wrote the introduction to uh, horror writer Eric Laraca's, um, uh, what is it, the, uh, the Trees Grew Because I Bled There, a collection oh, of short yeah. stories. 
um, phenomenal Great. author, uh, just really lyrical, beautiful, um, heartbreaking sort of author. Uh, yeah, so I'm just sort of getting in. Oh, and I'm reading Andy Davidson's um, The Hollow Kind. I don't know that. Car. Yeah, it's like a slow roll, sort of creepy uh, move. It's uh, kind of got that book of accidents vibe. Like family moves back to a house that they inherited, and you know, it's a woman and her kid, and um, you know, it's historically there's a lot of bad bad vibes going on there. So interesting. Uh, uh, great. These are all. These are all good, Rex. Uh, thank you so much, Chuck. Uh, thank congrats you. on the book. Um, and yeah, hope come come back and talk anytime. This is really fun. Absolutely. This is great. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.